1: welcome to health and safety conversations here's your host tom bourne
0: hi and welcome to health and safety conversations i'm your host tom bourne and with me today is the marvelous tristan casey tristan how are you
1: oh good mate thank you so much for having me along it's a pleasure to be here
0: it's 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 always good to get highly educated highly qualified and highly experienced people like yourself on all right, Tristan, you're well known in a lot of health and safety circles. But uh what was the seed? Where did where did where did it begin for you?
1: Yeah, great question. I love asking this one too, to um, you know, my workshops and audiences because you get such interesting answers. I you know, I started my life wanting to be an engineer of all things and then I for whatever reason decided, Hey, I'll do psychology because I love you know observing people. Um you know, not, not, not necessarily interacting with them all the time, but I love to watch them mm-hmm. and understand what makes them tick. And I think safety really satisfies that for me because it's this blend of people and technology coming together. It's this sort of nerdy side that I really love to invest in, which is um, innovative new technologies, keeping up to date with all the advancements there. But but how do people use them in ways that really make a difference and extend or augment their performance? So safety, I think, is a little bit like that. We deal with hazardous technologies. We know you know, what, what risk they pose, but also we can use them to improve and enhance ourselves in our our performance. So I really like that blend of, of the two worlds coming together.
0: Not one of those people that goes to a cafe and is sort of happy to sip on the coffee while watching the crowd go by and try and work out what their story is, are you? I,
1: so I don't know about working out the story. I do love the people watch, but more just for like a medit- meditative sort of, you know, chill uh, effect rather than oh, I wonder what what issues that that person's got at home or something. Uh, not yeah. not 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 up for that.
0: <laughs> oh, good, good, good. I'd be worried if you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, Tristan. Um, what are you doing currently now professionally?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a it's a complex story. So I I went to the UK for a year to um, get that little bug out of my system, just to, to go and travel and to take the family and do a few things. But now I'm back on that. Queensland University of Technology. So I'm at a university here in Brisbane and um, doing a bunch of interesting research projects, but also doing my own little side business, maybe safety, little side hustle. Um, yeah, so there's so, so, so plenty to keep me busy. I think in, in the health and safety space at the moment, it's a good time.
0: Okay. Are you working with uh, Nick Taras here?
1: Eh? Oh, I yeah obviously know him well and um, haven't got a project with him yet, but we have had a few chats. Yeah.
0: Ah, good, good. All right. You mentioned uh, New View Safety. Um, tell us a little bit about that.
1: Sure. So as I mentioned, it's just a, a little side gig for me. It's uh, something to keep me uh, in the healthy safety training space, actually. So doing, um, I guess, trying to translate some of these ideas that you, that you probably have heard on New View concepts like safety differently and pop and all those different flavors, trying to make sense of them and turn them into practical tools because I think there's a lot of anticipating and theorizing about these ideas, but not a lot of, well, what? How do you do it? What's the actual implementation of this look like? So myself and uh, and Kim Bancroft put this this concept together, and uh, yeah,
0: we've
1: just been doing a bit of training on the side.
0: You mean the marvelous Kim Bancroft? <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: I, I'm wonderful, and she's marvelous. So we ah, a <laughs> look at that. Look,
0: I I, I gotta say um, that's. That is the uh, one thing I could probably use with learning about is the practical application. Mm. Because big fan, you can you can see from a, a sort of philosophical view, new view safety. It, it it's so much better than what we were doing with behaviorism, in my opinion. Anyhow, um, mm. but I do worry about some of the practical applications with it, and I. I see people who, with the light bulb gets switched on for you know, safety to new view, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and they that that they're all enthusiastic, and then they try and implement things to the workplace, and that's where it stalls. Mm-hmm. Um, are you finding that's a common theme for people?
1: I think I think so. And I had this discussion just the other day in a. In a- past yesterday actually because people were saying well you know there's this there's this risk of safety going down the the flavor of the month um sort of avenue or, or just just the campaigns that come you know, endlessly endlessly cycling through an organization of well here's what we're doing this this year and now we've got a new safety manager or a new ceo will do something new and i think they're really missing the point of what uh, new view concepts are all about, which is really a, a a different mindset or a philosophical shift in thinking. So it's not something you can just put people through a training program and say, yes, we've picked the hot box and we're all, we're all hoppers now. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's deeper. It's, it's sort of thinking, well, how do we actually, you know, reimagine the way that everything in our organization works, yeah. the reporting structures, the HR function? It's, it's bigger than safety, I think. And most, I think a lot of people forget. or or fail to realise that it is a a fundamental change than just a a flash in the pan sort of initiative.
0: How do we go from having a system in place with new view safety, perhaps even learning teams, for example, Hmm. and then we change the uh, CEO, the manager, director, and they think that's all rubbish and we go straight back five or ten years in time how do we stop that how do we embed this so it's not going to be a sort of a flip-flop thing in organizations
1: yeah great one i it's a complex answer i think so if we think about those training campaigns or the superficial implementation they really just skim the surface they might change a little bit of behavior for a while or they might sort of, you know, adjust their attitudes, but they don't get down to the core of the organization, which is, you know, embedded into the policies, the tools, the procedures, and then even the fundamentals or the culture, the shared beliefs and assumptions that people have. So they don't, I guess they just don't go deep enough. When we talk about the survivability or sustainability of of, of new view concepts, um, you know, that the, the thought that came to my mind, Tom, was really. You know, ensuring that the people recruiting the CEO or the or the new executive are on board that on that journey. So the boards, you know, the executive boards or the the highest levels of the organization's governance, um, when they're out looking for a CEO, they should be should be searching for someone that has a similar mindset to that that sort of appreciates the hop or the new view kind of philosophy. Um, so I think you know, without touching all pieces of the organization from the bottom right to the top and kind of having a shared set of values around this, this approach, then it, it does run the risk of going backwards when you know, they'll they'll get a new CEO in, for example, and things will just revert back to how they work.
0: Yeah. Um, spoke earlier this year to uh, John Shattuck from Sunstrom Recruitment, and they deal primarily mm-hmm. in health and safety recruitment. And he was suggesting that one of the key things for any business is, is when they're recruiting safety personnel is... To have that sort of philosophical argument about where you, what you believe in before you actually hire someone, because it's those decisions, if you have the mismatch of um, Mm. beliefs, that can cause you grief. I guess that would be true for anywhere in the organization. The higher up, the more important those sort of conversations are.
1: Yeah, I I think that's a great point is, is, you know, your recruitment process is what sorts of interview questions are you posing? And are you really getting a good sense of, you know, the the mindset or the philosophy that person uses as they go about their, their practice in any organization? So, you know, we can ask people sort of superficial things like, where have you done really well? What's your last safety initiative that worked excellently? And how did you do it sort of thing? Um, but we often fail, like you, like you mentioned, to really dig deep and understand you know what is their, their perspective on these issues, and I mean, I'm not I don't want to seem like I'm advocating that we should just replace everyone with you know hop enthusiasts. You know, I think we can have shared values. People can have a shared sense of purpose and meaning, and and, and sort of the you know the, the the fundamentals of what it means to be part of a community in an organization. But we can have diversity of thought. You know, we can have people that are critical, challenge. Um, the last thing we probably want is an organization, if we're truly believing in this top mentality or this new view mentality is a very homogenous, sort of consistent way of thinking. That's, that's kind of the old way, you know, behavior. If only we can get everyone to care more, to really think the same exact same way and program them to think like that, then our safety challenges and our performance challenges will be gone. We know that diversity of thoughts and different perspectives are so important. But we also need a bit of consistency. It's a paradox. There's sort of diversity and uh, and alignment that we need to balance and tread very carefully
0: On yeah, yeah. Oh, come to paradoxes very shortly. I was just thinking, in, you 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 teach these new principles, you teach these new beliefs to people, and um, I don't know. I've, I've I've dabbled around the vet sector for over, for over a decade at least. Dabble a light word, but anyhow. Um are we likely to see uh, a nationally accredited program that will teach some of the uh, the principles behind this?
1: Yeah, I wonder. Um, I guess that's uh, for something to sort of get through the you know the the, the accreditation process and become an endorsed force, it's um, there's a lot of hurdles that you probably need to go through. I, I know a little bit about it, but. You know, the, the, I, I I suspect that, I don't know, it's actually a really good question because I was going to say the regulations and law probably needs to, to evolve to sort of make that business case or that sort of requirement become more apparent. But a lot of the legislation, I believe, really does already have new view principles baked into it. You know, this sort of idea of employee consultation and involvement, this idea of even due diligence, business, you know, executives and officers getting out into the field to understand the nuances of their business that, that's the real essence of the legislation it, it's really got newbie flavor to it um but the way that we've sort of interpreted that and used it is it's become more bureaucratic and compliance based so I sort of think it's it, it's a, it's sort of a bigger like societal um change that 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 needs to happen um for that for that to flow through and affect those those sorts of structures
0: yeah. Yeah, believe it or not, um, some of the things I've seen being taught today in current safety courses mm. still include pyramids uh, or triangles, <laughs> still include cheese uh, and all those sort of wonderful things that you know, you'd think we're starting to move away from. But um, no, uh, dominoes, all those wonderful, lovely things, that simplistic ideas. They're still being taught. And the scary thing for me is we're going to have a brand new lot of safety practitioners starting on their journey who are still believing the validity in those arguments. And it's it's frustrating. I still have students who quote back to me, you know, Heinrich's Pyramid and why it's so wonderful and that. And you go, well, mm-hmm. no, no, it's not. But... um. Yeah, it's it
1: was just great, yeah. yeah on. I was, was going to say, Tom. Like, I—that's I, really relevant to me at the moment because just just this week, I—I I sort of asked myself the question. that was a, a job I was working on for someone um, in Perth, and you know, they, the, the the client posed this question about you know like the similar challenge. The, 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 does the triangle exist is it valid? And you know, I, I sort of think like everyone, everyone trashes it, but you know, what What evidence do we actually have for this? And I, I went out and did a little bit of a systematic review of all the existing publications. I think I got nine. So there's not that much not that much study that's really looked specifically at Heinrich's triangle. Um, I guess fortunately or unfortunately for some, it did sort of suggest that the evidence is extremely limited, that it's, that it's valid. Um, but there is there is some little snippet there to say that in, in certain contexts, um, the smaller kind of near-miss, you know, the the low-hanging fruit can be correlated with the with the more significant incident um, outcomes. A very weak correlation. But what it's, what it's really saying is that, you know, Heinrich Heinrich kind of isn't he, I don't think he should be trashed necessarily. He's one of the a very influential, you know, sort of it, it's just it's just how it's taught. You know, if, if it's taught as part of the evolution of safety thinking and this is one of our forefathers or four people, someone that's really thought about this and come up with an interesting theory that stuck um you know that that, that's kind of a good way of framing it because he he did influence you know james reason he did influence to some extent more of the complex systems thinking ideas in a very weak way but you know that really set us on our journey and so i think you know it's something that we should we should hold on to but the way we kind of put it on a pedestal and promote it is probably not the right way to go
0: yeah look um my worry with teaching it even as a historical mm. in the historical context is um for me a lot of students are almost overwhelmed with the information and data we're giving to them in a short period of time. And and the danger for me is we're actually giving it by by even talking about it, we're actually giving it validity, at least in some students' minds. Um so that that's that's what I worry about. I, You know, if a student talks to me about it, I talk back. But uh, uh, otherwise, I, I leave it in the dusty bookshelf sort of stage. All right. Uh, speaking of things that uh, refuse to disappear. Uh, in the last two weeks, I've spoken to three highly intelligent people who have come out literally and said. The worker is. 100% responsible for uh, their own safety on site it, it's it's like a weed behaviourism isn't it? it just it it uh, you think you think you've pulled it out of your garden and all of a sudden it's back there and um it's it's a stubborn beast to remove what what do you reckon it is
1: um, well, I, I I guess there's a to sort of respond to that. there's a kernel of truth in everything that that everyone says because their their perception of reality is real for them. So you know th- when we say things like ninety percent of incidents are caused by human behavior, you know, of course, but it depends what perspective you're looking from. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we could say ninety percent are caused by you know a, a crappy procedure or we could say that it is it is a human. Behavior in terms of who designed and put that procedure in the first place. It's the behavior that created that procedure. So, it, it you know when you start to categorize things like that, it becomes a little bit nonsensical. I think um, the real issue we have is is kind of this this assumption that business owners have that, well, you know I can only do so much, and and you know I want to push that responsibility down the line to say that it's all your it's all you that's kind of responsible for your own your own protection. Um, so I think from a business perspective, it can be appealing. It kind of solves that problem that you know leaders only have so much time. They're very, they're very, you know, pulled and pushed in different directions. And the last thing they want to have is yet another responsibility to make sure that people are safe. And you know, they're not all leaders, but but that is a temptation. So I think the attractiveness of like behavioral safety and the, the new flavor of it, which is cognitive safety or even human performance to some extent, this idea that You've got to have good situational awareness. You've got to care about safety. You've got to make it personal. Like it, it does It does sort of, it is part of the answer, a very small part of the answer. But I think our emphasis, the pendulum, should be swung more towards the systems thinking ideas that, you know, as, a, as an employer, as a, as a leader, as someone with authority and influence in the business, I can have such a greater impact over my people um, through the actions that I do rather than expecting all of them to do something different. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's kind of my take on it.
0: All right. Um, are you a fan of learning teams? Um, a fan? Oh, I think they. I think they. I think they're good. But I.
1: I think that that's just the concept that's very messy. Um, it's it's sort of this thing that people say they do, but everyone does them differently. And um, not not that they have to be consistent and and have a structured process, but I I, I guess I doubt how effective they are when you know there's no sort of agreed process to go through you know people are just figuring it out themselves and that might be a good outcome it might be a poor outcome um and, and it requires quite advanced facilitation skills i think to do it correctly and i'm not sure that all safety professionals would have that that ability
0: yeah yeah um i'm going to say something that's might upset us a few people, but I, I just thought about it a moment ago. It sort of came to me. Mm. Learning teams, getting workers to decide on how to, you know, use their expertise to come up at how to do the jobs. Like well, I don't know, a bit like what we were supposed to do with job hazard analysis, job safety analysis, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Isn't that just another form of making the worker responsible for their own safety? Yeah, hmm,
1: let me think about that one. I don't think there's any problems with workers accepting some responsibility for safety. Um, It's it's more, I think, when that is a one-way street and and it's sort of a top-down pushing of that responsibility away from the organisation. So I I think the beauty of, of a learning team or even sort of like a JSA or some sort of group process where you all come together to discuss risk and identify solutions is a partnership. It's a joint responsibility. It's, it's a sort of this symbolic kind of handshake between two or more parties to say, look, you come up with solutions, we'll make them happen. We'll we'll enable your voice to be heard, but we'll also do our part to change the system so that it actually improves it for, for everyone. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it... It's not a bad thing that we that we want people to be responsible, but it's about the organisation also accepting their responsibility for
0: change and improvement. Good, good. Um, any concerns about uh, that? Le- Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. they might settle on solutions that don't meet minimum standards in regulations, for example?
1: Hmm. I think it really points to who's in the room. Um, So you could have a a learning team with all the greatest intentions, but if you've got the wrong folks doing it, and and by wrong, I mean uh, people who may not have the necessary knowledge about the technical aspects of the job, um, people who are disengaged or not really vocal in their their criticisms or or ideas, the composition of that of that team is is really critical. Um, perhaps the the safety person or the advisor that's that's facilitating or there as the technical expert could could sort of assume responsibility for that that kind of reg- regulation or legislative that lens. Um, you know, I I think one of the the mistakes we could make with learning teams is not really being clear about the roles and the and the duties of each member. Um, so I, I I suspect that in some organisations it's just a bit of a hey, we'll gather a few folks together we'll get in a room we'll talk about stuff and you know we'll come up with some ideas but you know that that formalized aspect there's nothing I think wrong with with trying to increase the transparency instruction and formalization of, of a learning team process to make it more effective
0: yeah good good um you're a lovely Queensland you know greatest civil well, second greatest state in in Australia <laughs> um Tell me, and you're you're a highly intelligent man, Queensland has codes of practice uh, that are legally enforceable. Is that a good or a bad thing?
1: Yeah, I guess my understanding is that they can be admitted as evidence in court that you've done all you can reasonably practicable. So, yeah, I think we've got to be careful on the language there that, you know, an inspector's not going to have a code of practice with a checklist and saying you didn't do it this exact way, so therefore you're you're non-compliant. Um so sorry, what was the question Tommy you're asking about codes of practice? Codes yeah, of practice.
0: Um in Queensland they are actually legally enforceable. In most other states, yeah. they're seen as best practice guidance documents, which could yeah, be yep. used then as evidence, but uh not yep. legally enforceable.
1: Yeah. Okay, is that a good thing? Oh, sure, sure, sure. Well, I think I think, it, yeah. Um I think where anywhere that we've kind of narrowing the railroad road, it, it depends on the context of the situation. So if it's if it's something where uh, it is a is extremely high risk, we know the hazard extremely well, and we know the control or controls or practices that mitigate that the best way, then perhaps that is a good idea. But if there's more flexibility required or the, the situation's more ambiguous or there's, you know. The the context really matters, I think, around making things very prescriptive or or quite flexible and goal based. So, you know, I, I don't have an issue with the fact that in in Queensland and other states there's specific regulations for constru- high risk construction work. I think that that makes sense. Um, whereas more general workplaces have that flexibility to be able to figure out the best way that they think, you know, with with some evidence or backing, you know, confirmation of that that this is this is how we'll manage that that process. So. Yeah, I don't, th- I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing. It just depends in what context they're they're made prescriptive. Good,
0: good. All right. I uh, recently got the uh, chance to attend a lovely meeting where you discussed safety paradoxes. Yeah. Um, we only had a limited number of people, which was which is a shame. But for those who weren't lucky enough to hear and see you, um, can you elaborate on that for the listeners? Yeah, sure. So I think we've touched on
1: it tangentially a little bit today already which is this idea that you know anything in an extreme um, is, is something that we should be a bit skeptical about so what I mean by that is is if we're focusing exclusively on individual behavior if we're focusing a lot on uh, you know um, empowerment and turning the organization upside down and shaking everything out then that's that's an extreme view as well and paradox tells us that there's these sort of seemingly contradictory goals that we're trying to achieve so when it comes to safety there's a few that come to mind there's um prevention versus promotion there's flexibility versus stability um you know sort of compliance versus proactivity there's there's a whole host of the so safety is just this rich kind of paradox field discipline um and we're sort of tempted psychologically to just solve that paradox by choosing one end of the goal over the other so we might say well you know, we've got this tension between you know people being consistent and wanting them to be creative and innovative. Let's just err on the side of caution and you know really proceduralize our organization and choose the compliance option because that seems like the you know the, the the method that's worked the best for safety over the past decade or you know 50 years or so. So we've got this temptation to choose the option that kind of is the easier option or the one that's been proven in their eyes or the person's eyes to make sense um based upon past performance so a paradox a paradoxical thinking and safety suggests, well let's try and bring the opposing goals together let's let's try and blend you know the old view and the new view together let's integrate let's let's seek the complex solutions to these tricky challenges rather than just trying to you know throw out the old and bring in the new or stick to the old and ignore the new that's kind of my lay person's explanation of it excellent
0: excellent all right um Psychological safety, um, been around for as long as I've been alive, at least as I believe. Um, but uh, certainly, I won't say flavour of the month for the last two years. But um, certainly, gained a lot more attention. Oh, any advice for businesses on how to actually effectively manage psychosocial risks in the workplace?
1: Yeah, it's a good, it's a good one. I did a webinar on this earlier in the week, so it's very fresh. Um, I guess before I answer that, I, I I wanted to do to say something a little bit controversial, which is I'm not sure that we should that the way that many regulators and guidance kind of documents have taken this issue is they've just taken everything from physical safety and plonked it down in the psychosocial state. Mm. And what I mean by that is there's yeah. the t- traditional risk management wheel. There's you know this is how you kind of manage the risk. You do it you know the, the assessment you. Eliminate or reduce as possible. The hierarchy of controls get supplied. and I'm not sure that's the best way because we know from theories like the job demands-resources model that some types of of hazards, you know, sort of like time pressure and and, um, and you know, they, we call them challenge challenge stressors. They're not inherently bad in themselves. Um, if they, if they're if they're in extreme or if they're not coupled with enough support, certainly they can be detrimental over the long term, but to sort of just apply this blanket, you know, hierarchy to say every kind of psychosocial hazard we have to get rid of or reduce as much as possible, I think is is really a tough keep for organizations and maybe not in the best interest of the employees. I kind of so just just a quick example, I liken it to to being outside and having sun exposure. You know, a bit of sun exposure is good for vitamin D and health and well-being, but too much obviously you get sunburn and cancers and all sorts of terrible things. So you know, psychosocial risk is a bit like that. You know, we want a little bit of demand and a little bit of pressure and intention to keep us sort of stimulated and activated in the workplace to be to keep us engaged, um, but not too much. And we also need that support to offset it and provide the enabling conditions to be successful.
0: Yeah, look, hallelujah! I, 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 <laughs> I have been worried that this for, for quite a while. Seriously, I was looking at the traditional. Um, hierarchy control and trying in my head to somehow apply that to mm. psychosocial hazards because, you know, that's what the, that's what the new regulations say. You've got mm. to treat them exactly the same way. And I go, okay, eliminate psychosocial hazards. Well, the only way you can do that is get rid of people out of your organisation because so long as people are interacting, there's always going to be at least the risk of a psychosocial uh, substitute. What do you do? You substitute people with robots. I guess that's the only way I can see that happening. Uh, let, let's go isolate. I don't know. We get the people who are the problem and we get them to work from home so they, they don't interact <laughs> with people. They can't inf- take in conferences. They can't email. It, it, that itself is a risk. Uh, engineering. How do you engineer? Do you just basically put blinkers and earmuffs on people so they can't talk to them? I I think it's a nonsense. I really do. I I struggle, and the the two, the, well, the one that really, the only control measures that category that fits the bill is administration, which is mm. training and more bloody paperwork, and more procedures. Mm. Which, so I'm with you. I think trying to get people to treat, or trying to actually say this is the law. We must treat it the same way we do physical hazards. Yeah, it's it's great that we're treating it with as much importance, but it's just nonsense. It just won't work. Mm,
1: yes, it's a tough challenge. I think, um, you know, if, if you think of solution, maybe there are some, uh, you know, non-negotiable hazards that that do have to be eliminated completely, which are things like bullying, harassment, discrimination, those types of things. They're kind of like the you know the minimum compliance level. Get rid of those things. But other, everything else is a little bit more more difficult to unpack. You know, if we talk about fatigue or how much fatigue is appropriate. You know, there's there's lots of literature on fatigue proofing and um, you know operating safely while fatigue. So going to alternate duties or lower risk tasks. Um, you know that type of thing. So it, it, it's it's psychosocial is so much more complex, I think, than the physical space. And what we're seeing now is like our first generation of, of controls and guidance you know i don't we shouldn't be too hard on ourselves we're still trying to invent and, and learn how to how to tackle these things but i look forward to you know the second and third generation legislation and guidance which may be more a little bit a little bit more nuanced
0: yeah um yeah I, I look to be honest bullying and harassment harassment sexual harassment to me they're not only not negotiable they're criminal offenses Mm. They're mm. criminal offences. And um, I don't know why organisations try and sweep things under the rug or move people from one workplace to another just to try and go. Soft. It's a criminal offence. If you spell that out right from your employment contract, what the behaviours are going to be expected, what's going to be tolerated and what will not be. Mm. I, I don't think anyone has an excuse. There is no one who cannot understand those those basic principles because everywhere else other than the workplace if we break the law we suffer the penalties and the consequences so why we make excuses for people and 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 look for alternative methods to modify let's be honest illegal behavior yeah it's a tough one but I, i i'm not for putting everyone in jail and that but it there are some, but I look at it in the prism from my eyes. Would mm. I want my child to be exposed to that sort of behavior? And, you know, I'm old and I've got a bit of a tough skin, so I can tolerate a certain amount of rubbish, uh, even if it is pushing the boundaries of being a legal behavior. But would I want my wife to put up with that? Would I mm. want my children to put up with that? And the thing is, Yeah, I think we need to start taking a stand and we need to start thinking about what sort of workplace do we want to leave for our children and their children because things have got to change you talked about fatigue, it's interesting I was speaking to someone yesterday about fatigue works in the resource sector, fly in and fly out and he's telling me about a situation where on their final day they're doing night shift and they, they get about six hours sleep before they're expected to be up and uh, travel four hours on the road to catch a plane. Hmm. And he's saying, is this a real fatigue issue? And I said, tell me, what what do you think it is? Uh, The employer's apparent comment was, for them was, uh, there's four of you in the car. You can take turns sleeping while the other one's driving. Mm, I don't know if that really cuts the mustard, to be honest. Yeah, that's
1: a really interesting example. I, I was looking at some of the um, international labour organisations um, got best practice guidance beyond notifiable incident reporting and they included in there any incident where there's a death or a serious injury on, as a result of commuting to and from work as part of an organization's notification duty. So I think stuff like that, it's obviously coming down the pipeline and I'm I'm not sure how long it will be before Australia might adjust our notified incident um, for the criteria to reflect those parts of things. But, you know, employers have to be more savvy with this stuff. I think people, you know, like you said, travelling so far and doing all these crazy, crazy, crazy hours um, just to get to and from work is, is not sustainable. Yeah,
0: true, true all right uh, what currently you must be looking forward to some things what currently excites you in prospects of terms in the safety world
1: yeah what excites me well you know on a personal note just just getting out and traveling and doing more um you know sort of more appearances internationally is, is sort of what excites me at the moment um but otherwise in terms of more you know fundamental stuff more more kind of uh theoretical stuff i think i think just accumulating kind of more evidence that that new view ideas work and and are, and are helpful I, I think that's something that we've really missed up to this point it's been a bit of an ideological journey we said yeah it's great it's awesome let's do it um but if you look at the literature there's not not a whole host of of intervention and evaluation studies that have been published yet so we've got a bit of a lag between you know industry powering ahead and the science is kind of lingering or, or lagging behind in some respect we've got a lot of descriptive studies you know what what doesn't work and why doesn't it work, but not a lot saying that the new approaches really really do what they say they, they, they do. Um, and I think until we have that, we just have to, you know, sort of experiment and, and measure the outcomes and see whether we're actually making a difference.
0: Mm. Um, with safety, we always tend to, I don't know. It, it seems we we seems to focus an awful lot of time on... Um... Quantitative measurements. I've uh, I have some doubts about the quantitative measurements that we're basing our beliefs on the effectiveness of safety. Um, is there any thought that we should move to some sort of more qualitative measurements? And is there any problems with using qualitative measurements as opposed to just the straight bean counting quantitative? Sure. Well, yeah,
1: qualitative adds another, you know, qu- the quant is the what and the follows the why. Um, so, you know, we can measure how much things happen or what happens, but, you know, we're really missing that richer understanding of well, what's the meaning that people are making of these things in the workplace. So, safety itself is, is, a, is a construct, it's a social thing that everyone has a different interpretation of what it, what it means to them and how it should be done in an organization. And so, you know, to sort of reduce it to this quantitative sort of templated, you know, here's what good looks like sort of thing and assessing ourselves against that, you know, that, that serves a purpose. It, it's part of the picture, but it doesn't tell us, well, where do we go and kind of where have we come from in terms of the rich history of how things have come to be. Um, So, yeah, I, I agree. Cold plus quant uh, is a good combination and safety professionals probably need to get more familiar and comfortable with dealing in qualitative data. Um, some of the risks, I guess, is information overload. People get a whole host of qualitative comments and just think, well, how do I make sense of this? Um, I think eventually AI will help us and it already is helping us with uh, topic modeling um, type techniques, but you know, there'll always be a subjective human element to, to qualitative analysis. We have to make sense of what people are saying and you know, group it together and categorize it and thematically analyze it. Um, so I think the biggest risk is just our capability to deal with that data and and know the techniques to analyse it with rigor and and uh, and uh, and efficiency as well, because so it can take a long time with the qualitative data.
0: Good. All right, just one last question, um Tristan. Uh, in your opinion. What's the greatest safety challenge? There are a few. Uh, what's what's the greatest safety challenge facing Australia currently?
1: yeah i i think it's just the credibility of safety and that's why i think the new view and uh and and pop ideas have been sort of taken up or even lapped up in some organizations because it's sort of is a fresher perspective that resonates with the front line you know they say oh what you actually want to talk to me now you want to understand what i do you want to know about the frustrations and challenges um but that also carries a risk because if we don't act on those things. Then the credibility is is eroded even further. So, you know, I I think, I think safety's got a bad rep in in Australia. It's sort of this, especially in industries like mining and those other high risk, very heavily compliance driven industries where everything is proceduralized. We can't take our toolbox from the car to the work site without a swims. Um, you know, just crazy stuff that we've gone too far with the documentation and evidence gathering or evidence creating. Um, you know, Drew, Drew Ray and Dave Proven talk about that safety of work and work of safety sort of um, concept, this idea that, you know, a lot of the stuff we do in safety means well, we demonstrate it and create a social importance for it. But ultimately, is that actually translating and flowing on to the safety of the job on, you know, does it affect the safety of frontline work is? So I think with, with that concept in the back of our mind, we can start to be more critical. As safety professionals, are we adding value, you know, is this eroding our credibility? Um, what do we need to do to maintain the trust and the engagement of the workers in, in safety moving forward? So I think you know Australia does have a credibility issue when it comes to safety.
0: Would agree a hundred percent, as I'm sure most workers would tell you as well. Ah, oh, thank goodness for that, Doctor Christian Tristan Casey. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today, and. I look forward to speaking to you again, soon.
1: Thanks, Tom. It's uh, wonderful to be on the on the show, and hope that you're, you all know, gain a little bit of little bit of value out of uh, the conversation. Thank like, you guys. Know, thanks very much. Thanks for listening to Health and Safety Conversations with Tom Bourne. Until next time, stay safe and enjoy the rest of your week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.